man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. It's a Monday edition of the PFT PM Podcast. Training camps opening throughout the National Football League. We're one week away from the return of PFT Live. We will have three, that's the plan, three editions of the PFTPM podcast this week. Today, obviously, Monday. Then Thursday and Friday. And on Thursday, this is a challenge that was thrown down last week by Michael David Smith in response to a question from a member of the PFTPM posse about possibly getting MDS on the podcast. He will join me Thursday. And then Friday, we'll talk about whatever it is that maybe going on and there will be plenty going on because as this week unfolds more and more camps will be opening and by the end of the week they will all be open by the time we're back on pft live all 32 camps will indeed be open format for today very loose and uh non-structured I'm going to answer your questions first and then if I have some things to discuss after that I shall So let's get right into it. Not a whole lot of questions today, which is how I like it. I really don't want to do an hour. I don't want to do an hour and 20 minutes like I did, I think, on Friday when we addressed the Tyreek Hill situation. See, here's the benefit of dropping something like the Tyreek Hill no suspension on Friday. By Monday, it feels like it happened a month ago. That's the benefit of the hard reset of a summer weekend. What happened on Friday from just three days ago may as well have been Friday from mid-May or mid-February. It just feels like it was forever ago that we were dealing with that. And you know what? Let me address something now. I just said I'm going to answer your questions, but... I want to address this one topic because people are asking about the Jerron Reed suspension, the Seahawks defensive lineman, who was suspended six games today, not last Friday. See, the contrast would have been a little too uncomfortable for the NFL last Friday. He had a claim of domestic violence that was made against him in 2017 and ultimately a six-game suspension. And I think the big difference as it relates to Tyree Kill and the Reed case. I'm in the process of tracking this down. If the alleged victim in Reed's case cooperated fully with the NFL, it becomes easier to get the information necessary on which to base a suspension. With Hill's case, it just feels like there wasn't enough there. And Crystal Espinall, the former fiance of Tyree Kill, the mother of the three-year-old boy who was at the center of the child abuse investigation, If she doesn't cooperate, now look, it's possible that her cooperation makes things worse if she's just not credible, but with no cooperation, it just makes it very difficult for the NFL to do anything. And that's one of the big flaws with this effort by the NFL to create its own in-house criminal justice system. It is limited by the quality of the evidence that it can get, and it has no investigative powers. It can only force its own employees to cooperate. Everyone else cooperates voluntarily or not at all. All right, let's get right to the questions. PFTPM Posse, per OG PFTPM Posse member, NFL Leads. What did you think of the SI podcast on Steve McNair's death? What do you believe happened 
to McNair. Is he one of the all-time most underrated quarterbacks? I never finished listening to the SI podcast. And there's a couple of reasons for it. First of all, I just felt like it meandered way too much. And I'm not a big podcast listener while I work. I can have TV shows on in the background, movies on in the background, typically shows or movies I've seen in the past. The problem is, for something like a podcast, I feel like you have to be locked in and listening to what's happening. And it's so easy to get completely lost if you're not paying attention. So that sound becomes background noise and five minutes of focusing intently on a story that I may be writing or an article I may be reading or text messages I may be exchanging. I've completely lost my spot. I have no idea what they're talking about. And then I rewind it and it just gets frustrating. And I eventually say, that's it. That's enough. I've moved on. So between frankly the podcast not holding my attention because I, I I just it just felt like it was kind of a little bit all over the place and I really don't know what the theory was you know I think like with a nonfiction book or a podcast or something like that there is a certain I don't know there's an art form in getting you to keep listening and drawing it all out and creating a sense of suspense and I, I just I, I felt like I knew enough about the Steve McNair case that I didn't need to have that carrot dangled to get me to keep listening and it just kind of frustrated me a little bit and maybe I'm wrong maybe I just wasn't paying close enough attention but anyway I I didn't listen to all of it I continue to believe it was not a murder-suicide committed by the 19 year old girl who had never owned a gun until a day or two before the incident because of the execution style slaying of McNair. That is not something that someone with no experience handling a firearm is going to be able to do on a first try. There's also a very graphic detail that you will learn about when you listen to, if you listen to the SI podcast on Steve McNair. I don't want to get into it. It's just graphic and it's sickening and it doesn't sound like something that a 19-year-old girl would have done after shooting execution-style Steve McNair and before killing herself. So I think it was a double murder. I've always thought it was a double murder. And I believe that the police in Nashville, and this is my own personal belief based upon all the reports and the speculation that's out there, I just think they wanted to be able to solve the case. And the reality was, if they call it a murder-suicide, the case is solved. If they call it a double murder, the case is unsolved until they find whoever it is that killed both people. And I think that they decided for whatever reason not to go down that path, maybe because they were concerned that at the end of the day, they weren't going to find who did it. PFTPM Posse. Why don't players and agents work together more often when negotiating for players on the same team? Similar position, value, etc. It would benefit the players financially, and if maximizing their income for family future truly is the number one priority, what are we missing here? Here's what we're missing. We're missing the reality that the agents, the players, and the NFLPA don't work together to the extent that they could to exert that collective pressure, that collusion that is illegal for the teams to engage in, but is perfectly legal for the players 
to do. And I've been arguing for weeks now, and Cowboys fans get pissed at me when I say this, that Amari Cooper and Dak Prescott should say to the Cowboys right now, we are not signing long-term contracts. You will have to choose next February which of us you're going to apply the franchise tag to, and the other one will become an unrestricted free agent. And the one who has the franchise tag applied to him should then partner up with Ezekiel Elliott and say, in 2021, neither of us will have signed long-term contracts. You're going to have to tag one of us and let the other one become a free agent. Now, look, I think that is a great strategy if you can hold it all together. The problem is if one of those guys has made an offer that he really likes, then he cracks. Because see, once you sign one of the guys to a long-term deal, then you have the franchise tag available to the other one. And you really need a strong commitment by the players, by the agents to hold firm. And it would be easier to do if the players were all represented by the same firm. The problem is you get yourself into a conflict of interest because there's only so many dollars available. So you have a great offer that was put on the table that you reject because you are determined to unfold this plan where both guys resist long-term deals, but one of the guys had a great long-term deal that he would have otherwise signed and he rejects it and then he tears his ACL and that offer goes away and he never sees it again. So there's some delicate nuances to all of this, but I don't believe that players and agents work in unison aggressively enough to apply leverage to the teams. I just think generally players and agents aren't as inclined to play hardball the way that they could and maybe the way that they should. Whether it's saying, go ahead and apply the franchise tag to me, I'm not going to sign a long-term deal. I'll go year to year under the franchise tag. I'm surprised in the aftermath of Kirk Cousins that more players haven't said, hey, you know what? What Kirk Cousins did and what Trumaine Johnson did makes a lot of sense. We're not signing long-term deals. I thought Russell Wilson would follow that approach. But the problem is they eventually put a number in front of you that you can't say no to. But maybe having that attitude is what gets them to put the number in front of you that you can't say no to. Let's see what else we have here. PFTPM policy. Why should NFL teams get money taken off the top of revenue for stadium credits when it seems like the vast majority of stadiums are built and often renovated, updated with taxpayer dollars? Well, look, regardless of whether and to what extent taxpayer dollars are available there's still a significant private contribution that gets made before the deal gets done. And the reality is this. The more that private contribution that can be foisted onto the players by using stadium credits as money that's taken off the top before the NFL and the NFLPA do their split, that that's just, it's not necessarily free money. It's still coming out of the coffers. But what it does is it increases, as a practical matter, the owner's recovery of the money that flows through. And let me just give you a basic example. If they would agree to a 50-50 split of all revenues, but they put this stadium credit concept into play, let's say for a dollar, without the stadium credits, 50 cents to the league and 50 cents to the union. Okay, we'll go 50-50, but we'll do stadium credits. And let's say that it takes 10 cents off the top. Well, That leaves 90 that gets split 50-50. That's 45 for the league, plus the 10 that they took off the top. So you get 55. 
that's how it works, and that's how it increases the take for the owners. That was one of the issues, one of the ethical issues. Not that there was something unethical about it, but it bothered me when I was practicing law. When you'd represent someone on a contingency fee basis, there were two different ways you could handle expenses. Because you always got reimbursed for your expenses. Now, if you lost the case on a contingency fee, I never went to a client and said, hey, you know what? You owe me this $5,000 that I spent in an unsuccessful attempt to get you a recovery. Fortunately, that didn't happen very often. But when it did, I just never enforced it and they never paid it and that was that. But when you get repayment of your expenses, there are a lot of lawyers out there who will take the expenses. No, they take their cut first and then take the expenses out of the client share instead of taking the expenses off the top. If you take the expenses off the top, what you do is you ultimately end up, because it's a relatively small amount, you end up with a smaller recovery. Wait a minute, how did that work? Whatever way it did, boy, I got myself all twisted up. It's been so long since I did it. Whatever way that that it that it worked to enhance what I got in my pocket, I did it the other way because I felt bad artificially reducing what the the individual who I represented was going to get. But the point is, and I ended up down this rabbit hole because it reminded me of that dynamic when thinking about these stadium credits, that taking this money off the top, money that goes directly to the league, money that they otherwise would be paying directly from their cut, this allows them to get 100% of that money, and then they get their cut of what's left. So that's why they want to do it. And the question is, would they lock out the players over the issue? I think that's what the players have to ask themselves. How much do we want to play along with this, knowing that there may be an issue that the owners dig in on and they're willing to miss regular season games over it at a time when players still have not shown a willingness to miss game checks over certain issues or any issue, as far as we can tell. Dean Osborne, 42. Surely the Cowboys should call Ezekiel Elliott's bluff here. Pick up a veteran running back in camp. If he holds out and move on, you don't want to tell by overpaying your running back no matter how good he is. Check the Patriots' blueprint. Well, the Patriots have one blueprint. The Cowboys have a different blueprint. The Cowboys' blueprint in recent years has been ride Ezekiel Elliott. Now, there's a chance that the offense under Kellen Moore is going to begin to shift and change, and maybe Dak Prescott can become a franchise quarterback, and maybe Amari Cooper can get close to 2,000 receiving yards. That's the number he told me last month he's shooting for. And maybe come next year, you don't need a workhorse running back. But look at what the Cowboys were the year between DeMarco Murray and Ezekiel Elliott. And from Elliott's standpoint, now is the time to take a stand because by the time this rookie contract expires, he will have far less tread on the tires and the Cowboys may be inclined to say, see you later, like they did to DeMarco Murray. And I don't know that it's a bluff per se. Everybody's got options. Everybody's got leverage. Stephen Jones, CEO of the Cowboys, on this program said back in May that Ezekiel Elliott is the straw that stirs our drink. Okay. He knows the value of Elliott to the team. He knows the importance of Elliott to the offense. That could change a year from now. And that's the key. Todd Gurley is the best example to look at here. Because look at how much everything changed in a year for Gurley. And he got paid. The Rams, in hindsight, probably wish they didn't pay him. But Gurley got paid before that knee problem made him not a special running back. Something can happen this season that makes Ezekiel Elliott not special. And he will not have gotten the major payday that he has earned. 
We talked about this at length last week with Peter Schaefer in an addition to the PFTPM podcast that was devoted almost exclusively to the running back market and why it's devalued and what can be done to fix it. And the problem is teams get the best of a running back before teams have to pay the running back. And by the time the contract gets to the point where the running back is eligible for that long-term deal, there's going to be a strong temptation to just not pay him. And I think the Cowboys have to be thinking about that. And so the only way to push this, if you're Elliot, is to take a stand. And it's funny how much this has changed in a week. Because as of last Monday, the impression was that Ezekiel Elliott was fine with the fact he wasn't getting a contract. The Cowboys were in no hurry to give him one. And I remember, I think it was Dan Graziano of ESPN, speculated, and the thing actually got some traction. It's like, this is just speculation, this idea that the Cowboys may never give him one, that they may pull the DeMarco Murray routine on Ezekiel Elliott. And Elliott seemed to be fine with it. Then all of a sudden, I was told last week, he's privately saying he's going to hold out. Charles Robinson of Yahoo added some meat to that bone. Saturday, I was told Elliott is making plans to be out of the country as of Thursday when Cowboys players are due to report. And then today, Ian Rappaport of the NFL very nonchalantly addressed the issue like it was a given that everybody knew that this holdout could happen. It's hardly a given. At least it was hardly a given a week ago. But it's come to the point where people are openly saying, yeah, he may hold out. He hasn't firmly decided to hold out, and whether he holds out or not depends upon whether or not any real progress is made toward giving him a contract, which means he's ready to hold out. That the Cowboys have to blink, or he will hold out. And the truth may be that he holds out, and then the Cowboys consider whether or not they're going to blink, and how far is Elliott going to push it? Would he skip all of training camp? Would he skip all of the preseason? Would he skip regular season games like Emmett Smith did 26 years ago before the Cowboys caved at 0-2, got Smith in the fold, and went on to become the first team in the NFL history that started 0-2 and won the Super Bowl. So I think Elliott's serious about it. I don't know where he's going. If he does go out of the country, he was in Mexico for six weeks during his suspension of a couple of years ago. But that's the thing. You pack up and leave the country. Now, I guess it's not all that hard to come back. But usually during a holdout, when it looks like things are moving in the right direction, you get the player to wherever the team is, and you have him squirreled away in a hotel ready to go the moment they get a deal done. That usually happens with first-round picks who are holding out. Another one from PFTPM Posse. The NFL suspends Jerron Reed for six games. Tyreek Hill doesn't even get a slap on the wrist. What bizarre world is the commissioner living in? What reality does the NFL reside in? Because it's damn sure not my reality. Seriously, how can we reconcile this? And we talked earlier about Reed, and I, I confirmed what I suspected, that he wasn't arrested or charged. He's still getting that six-game suspension without being arrested or charged, like Ezekiel Elliott a couple of years ago. And I'd be shocked if the truth is that his alleged victim didn't cooperate. I don't think you get to the point where you can suspend a guy who hasn't been arrested or charged without the alleged victim cooperating, which just underscores the flaws in the system. And I think the NFL should just go back to the days where they took action against the guy based upon what the criminal justice system did. That's how they kind of acted Pre-Ray Rice, now, they suspended Ben Roethlisberger without any arrest or charge. I firmly believe, though, he wrote a big check to the 
woman who alleged wrongdoing against him as a result of that incident in Millersville, Georgia. He had also been sued for sexual assault before that in Nevada. But for the most part, the NFL deferred to what the criminal justice system did. And with Ray Rice, he entered a diversion program. They suspended him two games, and people were upset about that, even without the video of the punch. And then the video of the punch came out, and all hell broke loose, and the NFL pushed the pendulum one way, and I really do think they've pushed the pendulum the other way. And I reconcile Hill and Jerron Reed by saying, the NFL doesn't care if Jerron Reed doesn't play. See, I think the NFL's agenda right now, I hate to say this, but I think it's true. They want offense. They want points. So maybe the truth is this. They will go easier on you. They will find a way to go easier on you if you are an offensive player. If you're a defensive player, then throw the book at him. And you would think over time that will become pretty conspicuous. But you know what? They don't need many years to build the kind of evidence that would make it obvious that offensive players are getting a break and defensive players are getting hammered. They're just trying to keep the offensive output at a level that makes the game sufficiently exciting to generate maximum ratings and in turn, maximum money in the next set of TV deals. Maybe it's that simple. All right, let's see what else we have. On Tour Forever wants an interview with Amy Trask before the preseason gets into full swing. She has responded with a gif of Scooby-Doo waving. I guess that's an acceptance. We'll try to get her set up for this. Leapers 500, word from Peter King is that Drew Locke is struggling in training camp and far from pressuring Flacco. He's barely even threatening undrafted rookie or is Kevin Hogan an undrafted rookie? He was just undrafted. Is this alarming or just rookie struggles? Has Elway found Paxton Pyrite? Again, I think it's too early. It's too early. It takes time for some guys to adjust to life in the NFL. And, you know, Drew Locke is a guy who many expect to get drafted higher than the 42nd overall selection. But whether you're 42nd, whether you're fourth or anywhere in between, there's no guarantee you're going to work out at the NFL level. And it just may take some time. Burn Unit, I know you question your desire to do the PFTPM podcast, even though I don't send many questions. I listen to it every time you produce one, whatever you decide to do. Thank you for the time you've put in for our entertainment. God. You know, not like a guilt trip to get me to keep doing this damn thing. Come on, Burn Unit. Josh Randall, John Reed's suspension appeal was denied despite never being charged. Does he have any recourse with how the league is holding certain players at different standards? If everyone had the same standards, that would be different. And I don't disagree with the idea that the perception of inconsistency is what creates the bad feeling for a lot of players who think they're on the wrong side of this. But the reality is this policy is set up to let the NFL do whatever the hell it wants to do. And if Jerron Reed tries to fight this thing in court, the argument that Tyreek Hill didn't get suspended at all It ain't going to make a damn bit of difference. The NFL has the power to make that decision, the discretion to make that decision. And the power also via the arbitration process that is set up by the personal conduct policy to appeal its own decisions. And between the Tom Brady case and the Ezekiel Elliott case, it became abundantly clear that the NFL truly has the power. And when push comes to shove, the NFL knows how to push and shove these cases into a favorable forum that will underscore further the power that the NFL has in situations like this. Justin Sandu, how do you think Al Riveron will handle pass interference reviews where 
There was clearly defensive holding just before the ball was thrown, but no P.I. with the ball in the air. Well, that's not reviewable. So it's not about whether or not there was illegal contact before the ball was in the air. And you raise a great point here, and this is one of the reasons why I'm glad I do this. Because will there be situations where... Al Riveron breaks down frame by frame, and we're meeting. Uh, it's supposed to, you know what? That every year the networks meet with the supervisor of officials before or during the season to go over the rules changes. It's supposed to be off the record. The fact that the meeting that Al Riveron had with NFL media was clearly not off the record, and multiple members of NFL media wrote about it and talked about it, creates kind of a weird posture right now. I don't know if ours is on the record or not. But one way or the other, I'm going to try to get resolution and, and an answer to this question of whether or not the review will include looking at any potential pre-ball-in-the-air contact that becomes pass interference. And I assume that if it's clear, the ball's in the air. Now, what do you have to do? Do you have to cross-reference multiple camera angles? I know they've done that in the past for, you know, whether or not both feet are on the ground, whether or not the ball's out. They'll look at two different angles. Can you look at two different angles and determine the ball is out? I guess you can if they're timed up perfectly. And if the ball's out when the hold is happening, and if the hold is clearly happening and it's significantly hindering the ability of the receiver, then I guess it's pass interference. Even if that's not the kind of call that creates the kind of uproar that prompted the NFL to put this new device in place. This has the potential to be a mess from the standpoint of how many times it slows down a game, how many times somebody throws a red flag, how many times we are watching and waiting for some arbitrary decision. And sometimes it's right, and sometimes it's not right. And that's the thing that I keep coming back to. The commissioner has the authority and the ability to go to Al Riveron and say, Hey, Al, here's how this rule is going to be implemented. It's only there for the truly obvious mistakes. This is not an invitation to micromanage the way that we micromanage whether or not two feet were down or whether or not the ball was out before the knee hit the ground. Those are objective things that can be perceived in that replay function. Whether or not, for example, Stephon Gilmore significantly impaired Brandon Cooks on a play from Super Bowl 53 that Riveron now says should have drawn a flag via replay review, and you look at it and you say, how can you say? How can the 50 drunks in a bar say that was a bad call? That's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a device to prevent another Nikel Roby Coleman of the Rams blowing up Tommy Lee Lewis of the Saints. That's it. We'll see how it plays out. But I like this question, although I'm troubled by this question, of clear defensive holding just before the ball was thrown, but no P.I. with the ball in the air, because the question's now going to be, in those situations, is there visual evidence that the ball was in the air at the time that holding happened? Gears of Ted, why is the spread offense taking so long to make it into the NFL? Well, the spread offense is a very generalized term. I mean, the college spread where the quarterback lines up along with all the other players and the quarterback looks over at the sideline and is told what to do, or at least is told into his helmet what to do instead of huddling, instead of having any discretion whatsoever and basically is being manipulated like a 
like a figure in the Madden game. You know, that 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 is happening because coaches have finally realized we're getting these guys coming out of college who aren't ready to run an NFL offense, so let's just run the offense they know how to run. But the concept of spreading guys out, that's been around for a long time. And that's just driven by where you think you can create mismatches. Remember the Patriots started doing that 15, 16 years ago. They would do it to the Steelers all the time. Just spread all your guys out and dilute the ability of the defense to cover everyone. And when you have a good quarterback who can find the mismatch, deliver the ball quickly, off you go. On tour forever, do you have any other trips planned for the summer? For now, no, other than my annual physical coming up on Wednesday, and that entails an out-of-town trip, but I don't think of that as a trip per se. Last year, we went to Vikings training camp for a weekend. I just kind of like, you know, as we get closer and closer to the start of the season, I become more and more protective of my weekends because when you do PFT Live all week long, PFT PM three times a week or more, post at profootballtalk.com on a regular basis. It's nice to have a Saturday and Sunday when I can just kind of exist and only write stories at profootballtalk.com. Throwing travel on top of it makes it a little more hectic and a little more stressful because what's happening is when the season begins, the end of the week, Saturday off you go, Sunday is an all-day 18-hour marathon, Monday up early, do the show, travel home, and get home and get right back at it. So I like having that Saturday and Sunday, those last few Saturdays and Sundays. It drives me crazy when I see those Twitter accounts, only nine more Sundays until the season starts. It's like, let's just enjoy these weekends, folks. Let's enjoy our summer. I say that all the time. I hate the count. Oh, can't wait. Yes, we can wait. Let's enjoy our lives. Football will be there. Football will be there and gone for 2019 before you know it. Let's not wish our lives away. And I can understand the younger you are, the more likely you are to do that. When you get old like me, you want to savor every morsel. It's the last cracker in the sleep, baby. I want that cracker to last. Uh, Let's see what else we have. Tyler Fornes, what veteran that is still a free agent is the biggest surprise to you? Oh, don't, 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 don't make me go down the Colin Kaepernick route. Do I have to go down the Colin Kaepernick route? I mean, that still continues to be the biggest surprise to the point where we're not even surprised anymore. It just, it just is. It's just the way it is. I did a Q&A with Brooks from Sports by Brooks last week, and one of the questions he asked was what ultimately was going on with the Colin Kaepernick situation, and I explained that it was an issue of control more than anything else. You had one of the players who identified a key flaw in the NFL's anthem policy, exploited it, taught others where that flaw was and how to exploit it as well. And the ongoing shunning of Colin Kaepernick with all of the goofy reasons that were floated a couple of years ago, it just became accepted. That, oh, well, guy's never going to play again. And even though a lot of people still think the reasons that were thrown out there a couple of years ago are bogus, We've just accepted the fact that even though he is talented, talented enough to be on a depth chart, he's still out there for reasons unrelated to his ability. 
On tour forever on a scale of bike wreck to Hindenburg. How much of a disaster show will Hard Knocks be with the Raiders this year? I don't know that that it will be a disaster. Here's why. In training camp, everything is about optimism. And Hard Knocks is going to be long gone before the Raiders are in position to go 0-1 or 0-2 or 1-3 or 2-6 or whatever adversity they may encounter this year. It's very easy to project optimism when you aren't playing games. The problem becomes, and this may be more of a function of all or nothing, and I wonder who the all or nothing team will be in 2019. Isn't it weird how we know who the Hard Knocks team is before the process starts? And we don't find out who the all or nothing team was until months after the season's in the can. This year it was the Panthers. We have an opportunity to watch that now. And I did watch the whole thing yesterday. I watched all eight episodes and I, I, maybe I'm just hard to please. And maybe the behind the scenes stuff doesn't do much for me because I have access to like behind the scenes chatter all the time. But I, there was nothing in all or nothing that I found compelling other than what I wrote about yesterday, Ron Rivera, man, Ron Rivera. And we're kind of numb to it now. We're desensitized to all the language but Ron Rivera cussing a blue streak jack in the locker room of the loss to the Steelers. Cam Newton painting in that uh, in that tapestry with some profanity. Several guys dropping the F-bombs very casually. But there's still flaws with it. They handled the Cam Newton shoulder injury. It was something that first popped up after the come-from-behind win against the Philadelphia Eagles, and they spent a lot of time dealing with that. But, you know, I haven't written this yet at PFT, and it's on my list to address. There were a couple of coaches who were fired by the Panthers during the season once everything started to go to crap. And, of course, there was no footage of the deliberations internally that resulted in Ron Rivera and the team coming to the conclusion that coaches needed to be fired, and there was no footage of the coaches being told that their jobs were ending. Even though Hard Knocks makes as a centerpiece every year those moments where players get pulled in and are told that their employment has ended. And I remember complaining a couple of years ago when Jeff Fisher got fired during the season when the Rams were the all-or-nothing team. Now, we had a very compelling scene where Jeff Fisher breaks the news to the team. But what about the compelling scene where Stan Kroenke and or Kevin Demoff break the news to Jeff Fisher? If it's good enough for the players, it should be good enough for the coaches, head coaches and assistant coaches. I, I I don't I don't feel like I wasted my time watching it, but I didn't think it was great. Other other than you know, and, and there's also the the uh, Dante Jackson criticism of him by the coaching staff, and they were very very aggressive with him about mistakes he was making, and he has since vented about the way he was treated. I'm surprised that any team would do that to one of its own players. Now, look, it gives you a very real glimpse into how things work, but there's a line there that you don't want to cross. And look at it. They were all over Jackson, and that got included in the show. And again, as I mentioned, the assistant coaches who got fired, that was it was just kind of, it was, it was just a moment that Ron Rivera blurted it out in a meeting with other coaches and, and that was it 
everybody moved on. So I think that it's always challenging with hard knocks and with all or nothing to respect the players and to not exploit the situations where you could very easily show them in their worst moments. So I don't think hard knocks is going to be a disaster. I really don't. Now, if it, if it is, that does not bode well for what's going to happen when real adversity comes the Raiders' way. But if you've got Antonio Brown pissed off because Derek Carr's throwing a bounce passes in training camp, then yeah, it's going to get ugly when the real games start. But I think that, that they will construct the five episodes of Hard Knocks in a way that make the Raiders look good. I think before the Raiders finally agreed to do this, they, they'd be stupid if they didn't exact all sorts of promises because they didn't want to do it. And I don't think the NFL wanted to have to say to any one team, you must do it. CZ Wald, have you ever gone down a YouTube rabbit hole of the office outtakes? My goodness, it's hilarious. I've done it before, but not all that deep down the rabbit hole. And now I'm going to end up doing it as soon as we're done here. And there goes the rest of the afternoon. Recliner QB. In your opinion, what's the best way to deal with teams not signing players to long-term contracts once they've outperformed non-negotiable rookie deals? They were handed after being drafted. New CBA since current NFLPA members are being negatively impacted by it. Yeah, I, 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 here's the problem. And we addressed this last week when Peter Schaefer was on the podcast. The rookies who are affected by the wage scale they're not represented in this at all everybody who's in a position to vote on the next cba every single member is already in the nfl they have their contracts they have their circumstances set are they going to give up something that is of value to them to prop up what a bunch of kids in college and high school and middle school and grade school are going to make on their way into the league and the argument is very simple. The more money those guys get is the less money that's available for us. Now, the best way to improve the standing of the veterans in that context is to move the spending floor up because that's the problem. By saving all that money on what they don't pay rookies, with the spending floor at 89% on a four-year rolling average, you have teams that can cram 11 cents per dollar into their pockets as profit. But I don't envision any scenario where veteran players are going to feel compelled to do anything to help the plight of the young player. You get some guys that may look at it and say, yeah, you know, these rules rules screwed me, but so what? Why, why should I try to give something up to help guys who are going to be screwed in the future the same way I was? I got screwed. They may as well get screwed too, so it's not going to be easy. Recliner QB, with it appearing that Julio Jones and the Falcons have agreed to a new deal, but not being able to make it official or announce it until a year has passed, why is that rule on the books? Can they get in trouble for breaking it if it's confirmed? Look, I, if there's a signed contract that's in someone's desk, then the rule's been violated. But I think that rule, the spirit of that rule gets violated all the time. You can have a deal that is negotiated, it's just not finalized until that year goes by. And I've since heard a few other things that makes me convinced that there is a deal in place. For Julio Jones. They couldn't have done Grady Jarrett and Deion Jones. They didn't know exactly what they were going to be spending on Julio Jones. That that wink nod deal quite possibly was done before Jarrett and Jones did their deals. And once Friday comes and goes, then the Falcons will be free 
to finalize the Julio Jones deal. And I don't understand the nuances here. It gets into the 30% rule, the Dion rule, the uncapped year. And I'd like for someone to explain it to me. Because I'm not going to try to figure it out from the CBA and then explain it incorrectly. Maybe I'll get somebody to explain it to me and then I'll try to explain it to you. But ultimately, the reality is they have to wait a year. And it was July 26th last year for Julio Jones when they moved some money from 2019 to 2018. They converted some of his salary from 2018 into a signing bonus. I think he got $4.4 million up front. And now they got to wait another year before they reconfigure it again. Dean Osborne, 42. Ultimately, do you think the Raiders will succeed long-term in Las Vegas? I don't know. I don't know. And what, what, what do you mean by succeed? Do, do you mean make money? Make more money than they would have made in Oakland? I mean, in Oakland, they've had the, the upper deck at that stadium covered for years now. What is it to be successful? Is it successful if the stadium's full every week, even if it's half full with fans of the visiting team who are making Las Vegas a travel destination in September, October, November, and December to see their favorite team play? Steelers fans in Montana? Hey, we're never going to get to see the Steelers play. Let's get down to Las Vegas. Let's fly down there and watch the Steelers. Is that successful? If they make enough money? Here's the thing about the NFL. And, and, and I've said this before. If you define success as winning the Super Bowl, you're going to fail a lot. 31 teams fail every year if that's your definition of success. If success is paying all your bills and then having a nice little pile of money left over that you can use to buy yachts and rare guitars, then you're successful. Publicly define it as winning the Super Bowl. Privately define it as winning the balance sheet. Do I think the Raiders would be successful? I mean, they're getting a stadium with $750 million in free money. They're already successful. We'll see how many tickets they sell. We'll see how full that stadium is. We'll see how that market supports the Las Vegas Raiders. We'll see. But they're making that commitment in large part because there there weren't a lot of great options. Now, remember, they initially wanted to go to Los Angeles. They had a proposal with the Chargers to share a stadium in Carson. The league picked the Rams project and then later allowed the Chargers to join in on it. But Las Vegas was a second choice for the Raiders. Maybe a third choice for the Raiders. Maybe they wanted San Antonio more. Now, when Las Vegas came around with three quarters of a billion dollars in free money, that may have changed everything. Maybe that would have made Las Vegas the first choice. But we'll see what kind of of uh, performance we get from the Raiders from the standpoint of money, from the standpoint of success, from the standpoint of quality of home field advantage and everything that goes into it for a Raiders team that simply wasn't in a position to thrive any longer in Oakland, especially given the politics and given the reality that in California, the free money isn't there to build a stadium. There's no free money for Stan Kroenke. He's paying for all that stuff. And sometimes it's the right decision to make. Pay for it, own it, and earn the money that comes from having it. And not have to worry about answering to any public bodies that want to micromanage how you run your stadium and how you count the money and you have to deal with this headache and that headache like the 49ers have 
with their stadium in Santa Clara. All right, I think that's it for the day. I answered your questions. We talked about Jerron Reed. We talked about Ezekiel Elliott. And that's going to have to hold you over until Thursday. No PFTPM tomorrow. No PFTPM Wednesday. And on Thursday, we'll come up with a good format. You know, what I'll do is I'll crowdsource the format. Tomorrow or the next day. What do you want MDS and me to discuss slash debate when we devote the entire Thursday episode of PFTPM to a visit from ProFootballTalk.com managing editor Michael David Smith? We will do that on Thursday. Until then, nonstop updates around the clock at ProFootballTalk.com. PFTOT continues. The countdown of the top 30 storylines. We are down to the last three or four. I think I have to do number four today. Got three left after that. That's how that's how math works. And uh, plenty more. Oh, I'm also thinking about a pre-training camp set of power rankings for Tuesday. We do power rankings every Tuesday during football season. I'm getting the itch to do a set of them for tomorrow. So be on the lookout for those and everything else that's happening in the NFL. Thanks, as always, for some of your time. Thanks for your support, and we will talk to you again in this format on Thursday. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.